Anthony Horowitz, it is a delight to have you on my podcast. I'm very pleased to be with you. I mean, I know we're sort of doing this virtually, but we were on stage together at Hay, and I think we both rather enjoyed our experience. It taught me, Matthew, to be very careful when I talk to you uh, publicly, because you have a very tricky ability to sort of get people to sort of say rather more than they intended to. And I'm always nervous in these interviews of saying anything that I'll read about in the papers the next day. So I, every time every time I speak to you, I should have a three-second mental pause before I come up with the answer. I don't think it was anything particularly provocative you said, but now you say that, I think it did make the papers, and I can't quite remember why it made the papers, and probably nor can you. It seems to happen quite a lot with me. I had a diary in The Spectator just last week, and I made some very light-hearted comments, I think, about uh, about having your books read, you know, for um, sensitivity readings. And um, I, and the next morning, I'm in bed, and I sort of open The Times, and there's my name. I think, these days, whenever I see my name in the papers, I dive under the bed covers and don't read it. When I was younger, of course, I was fascinated to know what they were going to say about me, but now I just try to avoid it. Right. Uh, so it is a strange thing, and it's something I actually do complain about a little bit, that these days... It's especially when you are talking in a literary festival, like you mentioned, Hey on Why, where the writer is, you know, extemporizing, you get thrown a question and you can't just sit there and think about it and sort of look glum. You have to come up with an immediate answer. And these days there's nearly always um, a journalist in the audience with a notepad waiting to make a story. You look at it, every single literary festival these days is run by a newspaper pretty much. And that newspaper sends reporters and the knowledge that writers will slip up and say things which will then turn into stories. And it sort of, it doesn't bother me. And I don't think there's anything sort of necessarily wrong with it. I'm not saying to stop it happening but nonetheless it does give me pause for thought because after all at the end of the day I'm just a writer talking about books and you know when we get into subjects such as you know whatever politics or, or whatever you know I, I have to just be careful. It's fascinating though, isn't it because we do live in a culture where there's a huge amount of weight attached to the views of people who aren't necessarily famous for those views. Well, it is an interesting fact, isn't it? You know, what I'm good at is murder and mystery and clues and suspense. You know, when it comes to sort of the workings of government, I'm not the person to sort of go to for immediate answers. But but that is what happens now. I think it's because, you know, once you have a 24-hour news cycle, which is what we've now learned to live with, then you have to have news every minute of the day. So whatever anybody says is going to turn up somewhere. Right. Let's start. And my first question to you is this. Rather than tell everyone what you're famous for, because everyone will know anyway, presumably, I want to ask you what you think you're most famous for and, and what people most regularly come up to you in in the street or, where you know, in a cafe or wherever it, wherever it may be and talk to you about and say, I love the Alex Ryder series or what an amazing James Bond that was or Foils, War, Wow, you know, or, 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 uh -huh. or, or contributing scripts to... Poirot and Midsummer Murders. Well, the first thing to say is that fortunately not many people will ever come up to me in the street or anywhere else because one of the joys of being a writer and uh, is, is that your face isn't particularly well known. I've often said that actually J.K. Rowling could sit in a restaurant and if she was wearing, just shall we say, a headscarf, it's very unlikely anybody would recognise her anyway. It's only people who are on television, actors, actresses, presenters, announcers, that sort of thing, whose faces become sort of... Uh, part of the public consciousness that have that problem. And I'm very glad I don't have it because I actually, the whole idea of fame is to me quite disconcerting. I'm, I'm very happy to have my name known and my books known, but I don't really want to be known uh, as a celebrity myself. And I don't think it's any that any writers are ever celebrities. Um, but if I am known for something, if ever uh, people come and uh, uh, meet me and say one thing, it is Alex Ryder. And it's not, 
just the sort of the success of the books. It's the way the books have got young people to read. I think if I have one thing that goes on my gravestone, it is that I managed to create a series of 13 books, 14 by the end of this year, um, where which have actually somehow managed to appeal to a whole generation of young people, boys and girls, incidentally, pretty much in a 50-50 split. And what I rather like about my life now is that I meet a lot of people who are in their 20s and even their 30s who almost turn into eight-year-olds in front of me when we meet because they read me when they were that age and they remember that the books had an impact on them. And that impact has, to a certain extent, been part of their decisions in life because I'm often meeting them in the media. So it'll be somebody who is perhaps, I don't know, working in a television studio or working one of our t- on our film sets. Um, and, and I love the idea that my writing has been, shall we say, a molecule in the bloodstream of so many young people. How on earth are you so prolific? I don't know whether it's 56 books, 57 books, whatever it is at the moment. It's an extraordinary number. And you've created so many characters. Plus, as I've intimated, you've, you've written for for the screen as well. So h- how do you do that? How do you keep up that pace and that intensity and that uh, attention to detail that means that you continue to be successful for quality as well as quantity? Well, I'm glad you put the two together because I, I would hate to be a writer who just as it were, churns it out, you know, one, two, three books a year. And I do have a sort of a a philosophy or a, a, a sort of a, that's not quite the right word. I have this desire that every single book I write should be as good, if not better, than the one before. And that's one of the reasons, incidentally, why I do so many different things. I mean, right now I've done, I mentioned 14 Alex Ryder books. I could have done 45 by now, but but I keep dot, dotting about. So I do a murder mystery. I do, you know, I do books on mythology or, 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 or humorous books or television shows and keep challenging myself and trying to I've always said that writing is an adventure writing should be a journey it should be something that excites you rather than merely something that provides you with a check at the end of each month how I'm so prolific is quite simple it's my passion I love writing more than anything in this world um I don't think I'm ever happier than when I have a pen in my hand and paper around me and and ideas are coming and I have my notebooks out and I'm thinking up clues or jokes or or characters or twists or turns, action, adventure. You know, I wrote a story once some years ago, I remember where Alex Ryder rode a horse over the edge of a cliff with a parachute attached. And I can't tell you what a buzz that gave me because I thought to myself, you know, nobody's ever done that before. There've been 25 Bond films, goodness knows how many Mission Impossible films, all these action adventure films. But as far as I can remember, I have never seen a parachuting horse And that, to me, is the answer to your question, because I couldn't wait to get back to my desk and write it. Just the fun of it, the immersion, the and and the the fact of breaking new ground. So that that is how it happens. It's just pure. It's not discipline. It's not a sort of, you know, a a sort of a sense of, of purpose and mission. It is simply enjoyment, passion, love. Is there a snobbery, do you think, that sometimes is directed towards crime writers, murder writers, spy writers, thriller writers? Would you like to be seen? Are you seen? Do you feel you are seen? Do you think you'll deserve to be seen alongside people who would be seen as classically literary type writers? Well, I have a feeling that classical literary type writers probably quite envy crime writers who sell so many tens of thousands of books. I'm not necessarily referring to myself, but the fact is that if you are a populist writer, you know, your books are on the shelves everywhere and you have a huge audience. And I'm sure there are literary writers who who almost envy that. In return, I admire hugely a great many literary writers. And this any, I don't know what 
people's sales figures are. I've never looked. I don't even know what my own are because I'm not interested. I'm just interested in the story, the book, the you know, in in the in the chapter, in the in the moment. But but I have a, a great admiration for the great writers. I mean, my great love in life is nineteenth century writing. So Charles Dickens is my great love. George Gissing is another. Um, Hardy, Austin, these are these are not thriller writers. These are not sort of, you know, although Dickens himself was, of course, an enormously commercial writer in his own way, but but I can see that they are on a plateau far above what I do. And goodness knows I wish I had their talent and their ability. So I I I I have an envy of them in some respects. But uh but but at the end of the day, I don't make comparisons. You know, I think the secret of being a writer is to do what you do, to do what you love doing, to to to, to know what you are capable of and to and to do it and and not really to worry what is happening around the corner. Could you describe the feeling of the moment you received the telephone call, if it was a telephone call or a letter or an email, asking you whether you'd be interested in writing a James Bond book? Well, it took a long time. The The James Bond estate decided to to start doing uh, a new, new, new series of Bond novels. And the first person they went to was Sebastian Falks. And I can tell you, I felt a massive sense of, of grievance and upset. I mean, why not me, I thought. I've been talking about Bond all my life. Everybody knows how much I love him. Alex Ryder, to a large extent, is inspired by him. If you, Am I not the go-to author? To which the estate replied quietly, no, you're not. Because then they went to Jeffrey Deaver, and after that, they went to William Boyd. And I sat there seething. And I, I have a, a memory that whenever I wrote articles for newspapers or diaries and The Spectator or whatever it was that I was doing in my sort of little tiny dalliance with journalism, I would somehow try to mention in the article how much I wanted to write a Bond novel in the hope that somebody from the estate would read it. And and finally, a lady called Corinne Turner did indeed ring me and ask me if I'd like to come in for a meeting. She runs, she's sort of the sort of the general secretary and sort of organizer of the of the Bond estate. And um, and my feeling was sort of, oh, finally, at last, if you'd waited any longer, I'd have said no. Uh, you know, pride and all the rest of it. But but of course I was thrilled because Bond was a huge influence on me when I was young. I mean, uh, Dr. No came out when I was, I think, about nine years old. That was a film. And that led me into the books, which, um, you know, I used to buy with my pocket money one after another. And the sort of the the the... the romance of them, the adventure, the excitement, the glamour, the good food, the beautiful women, the lovely weather, the exotic locations. At a time when I was stuck in a particularly dreary, grim prep school in North London, where I was really deeply unhappy, these books were were a lifeline to me. I mean, I, and I mean that almost literally. Um, and, uh, and I'd always wanted to write Bond. So this was a moment of sheer euphoria that finally it had come to me. And the, the book that followed Trigger Mortis, I was extremely nervous about writing. Having finally got it on my table and the opportunity, opportunity to do it, I was very concerned I would fail because actually Ian Fleming is an extremely good writer and a very difficult one to emulate. What was it like being asked to write Sherlock Holmes? That happened before Bond. I mean, Sherlock Holmes came to me I said, out of the blue, really, my agent asked me if I'd be interested. And of course, I leapt at it. You know, the continuation novels, as they are called, there is something about them that I find a little bit sort of cynical. You, you take a, a very, very famous character, Holmes, Bond, Jeeves and Worcester, whoever it may be, and then you take a very famous writer and you pin the two of them together to create a new book in it. And I think the sort of the aim is, is the ka-ching. I mean, it, it is just that. It's bound to be a success. So... I had a sort of nervousness about doing Sherlock Holmes, which lasted all of about two or three seconds before I said yes, because 
at the same time, these are books that I absolutely adored. Again, I'm 17 years old. I'm living in North London. I'm in a suburb in a rather wealthy, Victorian, dull, difficult family. And these stories provide a sort of melodrama, a sort of a miasma. But, you know, I love the idea that, that a temple in Agra and a stolen diamond, the tentacles of that can reach out to some of the most boring places on the planet. You know, Doyle says his stories in Croydon, in West Norwood. He could have done one in Stanmore, where I was living. And and to me, that, that's been sort of the whole, sort of, it's underpinned my life, this idea that no matter how dull may things may seem around you there is always mystery there are always secrets to be found and that's what Sherlock Holmes exemplifies so talk to me about your immediate environment when you're writing have you because of the gloominess of some of the environments you grew up in that you've described did that mean that you wanted to make a particular effort to to curate a writing environment that you felt was really positive? Talk to us about that. Talk to us about where you write and the sort of physicality of it, or the atmosphere of it. I will just say quickly that, you know, Stanmore is only boring to me. I'm sure it's a perfectly lovely place. And incidentally, the Second World War was largely won from Stanmore. So it has got enormous interest in it. And I lived right next door to where the RAF had been based, you know, in the, in the 40s. So... You know, the, the, the boredom, I felt, was personal rather than a, an, a, an, a, an assault on, on those particular places. And as to the sort of the rooms where I work in, the sad truth is that whether you are a beginning writer, you know, an up and coming writer or a successful writer, you are at the end of the day still sitting in one room for an awful lot of hours on your own. And that is in itself really quite, quite sort of, a, you know, a dull environment. What I tend to do is to surround myself with things that I love. I mean, I'm sitting at this very moment. And if, if you were to turn your television cameras on for the for, for your audience to see, you know, you will see loads of things to do with Tintin around me. I mean, Tintin Rocket over there, Tintin Bust up there, the Thompson and twins over there and and they remind me of my of my young love for the Tintin books I have a human skull on the shelf behind me that's a memento mori get on with the book Anthony quite soon you're going to look exactly like that uh I also have my own books around me which is sort of okay that's a little bit egotistical but nonetheless it reminds me of the achievement so far and and to add to it um I I have artworks on the walls that aren't valuable which in each case give me a certain smile a pleasure something that reminds me of of, of, of they just make me happy. That's, that's it's as simple as that. So the room is very carefully designed. There is nothing I can look at here that doesn't in some way relate back to my work. I have a lot of toys. I collect automata. Um, if I tilt the camera, there's one over there. That's that on the right hand side is by a man called Paul Spooner. It's a it's a it's a little toy, a wooden toy that, that, that those doors all open one after another. The mechanism is extremely ingenious. And um and again, I love I love the fact that it's there because it's it's something which just brings us smile it has it is something that is extremely cleverly built and and sophisticated in a way and unique there's anyone in the world and it does nothing at all it is completely and utterly useless and i'm a great believer in things in life that should just give pleasure and do nothing more than that in a way that defines my work i'm curious because i've seen a picture i think i've seen a picture of you looking out at what appears to be from your writing desk looking out with the sort of panoramic window looking out over london <laughs> I'm afraid we sold that house. That, where, that was in Clerkenwell, where I used to live. I've now moved to Richmond. And uh, and although my, my view out of my window could not be more boring, it is a car park, um, uh, I I can glimpse the river the other way. So, I, so I, I'm very um, happy to be here. And, and, you know, the important thing for me is, is when I'm working, I'm not looking out of the window. 
I am immersed utterly in my writing. It's with a pen and paper, not not the computer that I'm using to talk to you now. Uh, I'm a great believer in writing by hand. Um, and the world outside is forgotten when I'm writing. I mean, but but at the same time, when I need a rest, I have to, you know, get up and walk and I take my dog out and that sort of stuff. It's lovely to be able to walk out a front door and within five minutes to be sort of, you know, on the River Thames and walking down, looking at the swans and the and the and the opposite us where we live here, there's a a tree that has herons' nests in it. And last spring, I saw herons being born on the branches and taking to taking to the skies for the first time, and that gave me just such joy and happiness. But that surely has to inform my work. Is it ever a chore writing? If it's a chore, something's gone wrong. I think. I mean, there are times, I mean, at the moment I'm adapting uh, Moonflower Murders, which is uh, the sequel to Magpie Murders, which was filmed a, a year or so ago with uh, Leslie Manville in it. And I'm now doing Moonflower Murders, which is a 700 page book. It has, I think, something like four murders, three killers, a dozen suspects more clues than I can count, red herrings and everything, and trying to reassemble that on the page as a six-part television series that will work. And we're shooting it this June. You could call that a chore because it is complicated and it sort of, and it, and it wears me out. Uh, but at the same time, as it comes together and the, the episodes work, and my wife, Jill Green, who is a producer, reads them first and comes in and says, yeah, that's great. What, again, I get from it is not the sense of exhaustion and sort of, oh, my goodness, how, how am I going to get this done? But a sense of, yes, it's happening, it's working, it's going to be good. What is it like working with your wife, both her reading some of your work, some of your writing, but also then collaborating professionally when it comes to actually putting stuff on telly? Well, I'm very lucky because Jill's brilliant at what she does. I mean, you know, and, and our marriage is as much based on on, on work and, and joint creativity as it is on everything else, you know, family and 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 and, and love and such and all the rest of that. Uh, it is it is what's it like working with her? I mean it's 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 fantastic because it means that first of all I know that the the scripts will be done well and will be produced well. I mean I've worked on shows where the producer hasn't ever shown up on the set whereas Jill never leaves it. I mean you know she she is 100% hands on. It's funny I she's the only person in the world I know who works harder than me and sometimes we'll be there at 11 o'clock at night or 11:30 and we're both of us sort of just sitting there working away on our different things and we look at each other and say what are we doing with our lives? But what we're doing is what we love doing which is which is the work we do particularly together. We worked on Foil's War for something like 15 years together. And um, all my best TV, I think, or most of it, Collision and Injustice and, and New Blood and 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 certainly Magpie Murders, we've done together. And, you know, it, it, it can be difficult. I, I delivered the second script of Moonflower Murders to her a couple of weeks ago. And she gave me that face that I know so well, which is that she didn't like it. She sort of said a few sort of half endearing things about it. So I stormed off in a terrible rage and sort of, you know, shouting at the heavens until I realized that she was absolutely right. It wasn't ready yet. It wasn't, I'd, I'd, I'd taken the wrong direction. And she's very, very good at handling me because I have a sort of, you know, I'm, I'm very thin skinned. When you tell me my work is no good, when I get a bad review, you know, it hurts. And especially if it comes from Jill. But the great thing about her is that she always has the answers. It's not just this isn't working. It's this isn't working, but try this. And and even if I do sort of shout for a bit, I'm, eventually I have to admit she's right. So how do you improve something? How do you go about that? 
Well, it depends what's wrong. I mean, in the case of this second script, it was just too much about murder, too many interviews about where were you on the night of sort of thing, and too many people asking each other questions. And it was a bit boring and flat. So you then look at the script and you say, well, what scenes are boring? What aren't, What isn't working? And you say, well, that character is just not an interesting character. And the information in this scene, actually, if you lost it all together, nobody would care. So you could just cut all that out, which leaves you with a space which you could put in something that's more fun. That character we love him he's hilarious let's have him back in at this point and so then you know that it's so that's a question of balance and and often what's wrong is simply it's simply the adapting which is a very different form of writing incidentally to originating you know when you have already got a book you know in this case this book here uh moonflower murders it's a case of knowing what to take out, what to lose, what to, you know, to fill it out, what is best, and if necessary, to add completely new material to it, your new characters, new events that aren't in the book, to, to, to keep the whole thing alive, because watching television and reading a book are such different activities. I've forgotten now what your original question was, but, but that's was it how to improve things, how do you improve things? And I think basically it's just, for me, writing and reading is like a sort of a river, but it's a sort of a flow to it. And that's what I'm always searching for. Others call it the locomotive. When I was young and being taught sort of writing by people who were better than me, they used to talk about the locomotive. What is the locomotive of this series? By which they don't necessarily mean the sort of the motive for the murder or the 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 back history of a character it's something more metaphysical than that it's a sort of the reason why you get on board it's what pulls this whole show along the track towards its conclusion and finding the locomotive is is, is to me the most important part of writing particularly television as such a hard worker how do you juggle being a dad with being a hard worker well first of all i don't think of myself as a hard worker not in the way of a, a nurse or a builder or a or, a, or, a, or a, you know, many, many other professions where people are really sweating and working and, and lives are at stake. I am a writer, you know, I'm sitting behind a desk with a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit. It's sort of, you know, this is this is not work. This is lifestyle. This is passion. This is this is breathing. It, it's, it's just what I do. You did say that you don't know anyone who works hard okay, than your that wife or something. But I was talking about my wife, Jill, more than myself. Okay. And by that, I was using the word merely to mean to be involved in things that are not so rather than what your question is, which is to do more with sort of career and grind versus being a dad, which I suppose is what? I, I, well, my children are now in their 30s, so there's not an awful lot for me left to do. But I think that when they were younger, the most important aspect of bringing up children for me was to be different to my own parents. My favourite poem is, is, is the Larkin one, the famous Larkin one. They, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. You know, you know that one. Um, but um, I did try very hard to involve them in my world and in my work. I still have memories of them coming back from school as little children crossing the garden in front of my office. And I would always, always stop work for at least two minutes to see them and see that they were well and happy and to involve them in my work and to, you know, and to, and to have some fun together. And we are very close as a family. That's the one, if, if I was to look on my life and, you know, ask, if you were to ask me what are my biggest successes in life, I would say the fact that my family is so close and that we are all 
so aware of each other. You know, I didn't really know my parents. And I think that's a generational thing, partly, but it was also my parents. I didn't know them. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what they felt. I didn't know their weaknesses. I think that my children know me very, very well. And we are still, you know, we lived together for many years in Clerkenwell. And for 14 years, we were sharing the same building, uh, different bits of it, but the same building even so. And now that we've all gone our own separate ways, I'm happy to say that we are still close and see each other all the time. Were you quite unhappy as a boy? I mean, not entirely, obviously, but I mean, were you were you unhappy at times? It's, difficult. it's a difficult question to answer because I was wealthy, I was privileged, I went to a private school, we had, you know, an enormous house and a beautiful garden. And if I then say, yes, I was unhappy, people listening may say, well, you know, I wish I could be so unhappy. But it's the funny thing is, I've always said that, that rich kids can be unhappy too. And I had a very, very strange family, a father who was very distant uh, and and a, a lot of unhappiness and, and a, a horrible prep school for five years, you know, with all the sort of things that go with that sort of the 60s education. Um, and uh, and I was extremely unhappy. Yeah, I was, I, 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 and that unhappiness has never left me. I mean, it's always there. It's a sort of a wound that never goes away. That, you know, what you do to a child from the age of, six to 16 is is what you do to them for life. It's fascinating to hear because it it makes me wonder whether your brilliance as a writer, your success, your ability to bring so many people along a journey with you, whether that's whether that has in any way grown out of or been shaped by some of that unhappiness, some of the experiences that you had as a child. I think so. I think the reason I began to write children's books at a very early age, I was 22 and I wrote the first one, was to make up for not having had a sensible or a reasonable or a workable childhood of my own. And I've often, I have been asked in the past, would I exchange an unhappy childhood and the unhappiness I felt there for, you know, for a for for a better future life, if you like, you know, one one playing the other. And I've always said no, that actually a lot of my writing, particularly my early books, are all fire. The, the fuel of them, the, the you know, what keeps them burning is a sense of injustice and unhappiness and, and fighting back and a determination against all the odds. My parents incidentally thought I was, my father in particular, thought I was was very stupid. I mean, that he made no no secret of that, but he thought that my ambitions to be a writer were ridiculous and that I had very little. My brother was meant to be the clever one in the family. And um I, I was the sort of the the, the sort of the the, the 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 stupid fat middle child. And um that sense of I will show you is still there with me to an extent. I mean, even though my parents are long since gone. I mean, it's God, that sounds a bit sad, really, doesn't it? I don't sit up, wake up every morning and look at the photograph of them and say, I'm going to show you today. But it's just a little element of what's in my head, perhaps. I think I'm right in saying that you were pretty convinced from a very young age, or relatively young age anyway, that you were going to be a professional writer. Just just how old were you when you made this decision? Ten. And I know, I remember it vividly because I asked for a notebook, a, a pad of paper to write in and pens and all that sort of stuff. And um, I can still remember writing my first, it was a play when I was 10 years old. It was called The Thing That Never Happened. And it was about Guy Fawkes blowing up the Houses of Parliament. Um, uh, not a great title, incidentally, but uh, uh, that was my first piece of writing. And I was writing stories and novels and everything all into my teens and and such. I, I remember when I read Virginia Woolf for the first time, I began to write novels in the style of Virginia Woolf. 
they must have been absolutely horrific but that's that's how it was it was always a sense of uh, uh, you know of of loving story and loving and just finding myself in writing in the library you know i campaign a lot for for school libraries in particular public libraries yes but school libraries even more so because the one safe room in Audi Farm, the school I was at, the one room where I felt safe, the one room I found myself and 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 sort of and, and had a sort of sense of happiness was the library. Um and you know I remember reading the Willard Price novels. You you may know them. They're still in print. Um Lion Adventure, Shark Adventure, Cannibal Adventure, always adventure, always travel, all over the world. And to me, the year was defined by when the next one would come in. I still remember waiting. They used to have a list for, you know, you had to write your name on the list for which book you wanted to have. And I would be number two or three on the list for Willard Price. And I just couldn't wait for this book to arrive so I could read it. You're prolific during the, the really challenging times of the pandemic, weren't you? I, I think you wrote three books. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. There was certainly a Bond, a Bond book, Mine to Kill, and there was Twist of a Knife, a, a Hawthorne book. Is there, is there a is there a character or a series to which you return with the greatest enthusiasm, with the greatest sort of fire in your belly? Well, there was a third book, which I will mention, which because it sort of answers your question. The Diamond Brothers also made a return in a book called uh, Where Seagulls Dare, which is my it's my Brexit book. It's my little commentary on the on on politics and on right wing politics and on on Brexit. And um, I wrote that, and I'm proud of it because it it's the the money from it goes to charity. So uh, that was also very much a a, a COVID book, and. Um, I loved returning to them because they're the very first characters I ever wrote. It's the world's most stupid detective, Tim Diamond, with his smarter younger brother as a setup. And they're the, they're the books where I can let my humour go and just and write sort of, you know, ridiculous jokes. But I guess the, the, that, that, that would be part of the answer. Alex Ryder would have to be the other side of the answer because, you know, I've just finished the 14th book in that series and it's always a pleasure to go back to Alex Ryder. He made my career and... You know, I spoke, we were talking earlier about the sort of, you know, the impact he seems to have had. So I always think of all these 20 and 30 year olds who can now come back to Alex. There's another one on the way. Um, and I would have to say also, God, it's a difficult question because it's really all my books, isn't it? It's the answer. But the Hawthorne series, I've got a number five to write on that. And I'm planning to do 12 in that series. And um, every time I write a new Hawthorne book, I discover something else about it. And I'm loving that. That's it. And I love the relationship because I'm a character in the book. I'm the narrator to his, his detective. I love the sort of... I love the unlikely friendship that we have and the way it's developing and the fact that no matter how horrible he is, I seem to like him more and more with every book. So that's an adventure that's actually happening at the moment. And, uh, you know, I'm going to start writing number five any day now. I'm already sort of planning it. And um, and I've got a sort of a real tingle of excitement about getting back into that. Is there a character or a series within the within the genre or the genres within which you write, Anthony, that not, not that you would that you wished you had written or come up with, but that you you have a particular soft spot and you rather admire the genius of, or you you admire the way that character or series has been written, or something about it that's really mm -hmm. got you. There are many, many. I mean, you were talking earlier about sort of great writers and, and and how I look up to them. And I think about, you know, there are so, so many characters in Dickens that I wish I had thought of. Miss Havisham, for example. You know, what a fantastic idea for a character, this this spurned woman who sits in her mouldering wedding dress with the with the disgusting cake in this room that hasn't changed. I mean, it's that's what's the genius of Dickens. In every single one of his books, you'll find half a dozen characters that any writer would wish that they had themselves thought of. But then, you know, there's 
Jeeves and Worcester. I may have mentioned them too earlier, whom I adore. You know, whenever you feel down or depressed, open a Jeeves and Worcester book, and you and that wonderful inventiveness by Woodhouse and the and the, the relationship between the spark, the banter, the world of it. Bond, of course, is another one. I mean, you know, goodness knows I wish I could have created a character like Bond. Or Modesty Blaze, if you want the female equivalent by Peter O'Donnell, another fabulous character. Sherlock Holmes, of course. Poirot, so many great detectives that are out there um, that I wish that I had thought of. Whimsy, I mean, you know, that the, the, the you read, you read, I read books with a sense, you know, we talked earlier about envy, about writers envying other. It's not envy, it's admiration. It is absolutely, wow, how did you do that? And sort of, yeah, I wish I had. Have your, we've only got four questions left and there's so much to fit in, but have your attitudes changed over the years? I've read, I think, that you'd say that they have. But would you say that you, I mean, you, you talk about your book that you wrote about Brexit and about right-wing politics, but where are you now politically, if if I'm allowed to ask? And you're, if, you're allowed to ask anything, if, if, you're happy, if you're happy to answer, I mean. But if, where are you politically? And would you say that you've sort of shifted politically over the years and in, in, and in your sort of, worldview. 20 years ago, I was the go-to right-wing writer to go, not ultra right-wing, but if you wanted, if the BBC were doing a sort of a piece and they wanted somebody to comment on it who was sort of vaguely conservative, they would come to me. They can't anymore. I, I find that my politics have slid quite some distance to the left towards, you know, as much as I, I, I was very opposed to, to Blair when he was prime minister, uh, and still think that 2003 was a catast was the mother of all political errors and has led step by step by step to exactly where we are now. Uh, but now I sort of find his voice reassuring and encouraging and realize how right he was in so many other areas. So, so I have slid away, but, but at the end of the day, you know, Matthew, it's not, I think, I think it's reasonable to say that it is not I that have made the great move to the left, but the party I supported, which has taken 10 steps to the right and therefore left me and many people like me disenfranchised. And now we look to Labour, which only yesterday, you know, got its, got its sort of clean bill of health from the sort of the anti-Semitism and the sort of the misery of the Corbyn years. Uh, and and I think that is why at the next election the Conservatives are going to have a very very tough job to um to uh to win, because not because they their views have changed, but because the parties have shifted, the goalposts have moved, and now we find ourselves almost naturally in the camp of New Labour. Not that is to say that I think they'll do much of a better job when they get into power, uh, but that's another story. How big a part of your identity is being Jewish? Creatively, it is quite a part. I, th I think that there is something about the sort of the Jewish, uh, the ethnicity of being Jewish that somehow feeds my creativity. I don't believe in God. I have no interest in religion whatsoever. I do not go to synagogue. I have no observance of anything to do with sort of Jewish law. And, um, and that is how it's been since I was about 12 years old. So small in a word. Could you explain to me the baseball cap? I can't remember whether I asked you this question when we were in Hay, but it fascinates me because I think you wore it on stage. It, it, it's just uh, the reason I ask, and you're sort of slumping back in your chair as I ask you with a smile oh, on your face yeah. now, but I, I'm, I mean, I'm very interested in it. because well, I, suppose, I do have hair. There it is. Look, I can look without it. I like the baseball cap. I, I've, it's, it's very weird that this has happened, that I've sort of suddenly taken to wearing this pretty much the whole time. It's an age thing, I think, actually. It's to do with the sense that as I get older, I I, I want to hide as much of myself as I can. I mean, you're lucky I'm not doing this, this interview with my usual scarf across my face as well and dark glasses. Uh, but, but it's just a case of, 
it's just it's just happened. Is that is it's not sort of a, a, a conscious? What do you think? Do you think it looks ridiculous? No, I like it. Oh well, I, mean, I, w- I would say that, wouldn't I? But I actually do like it. But it doesn't mean that I'm not curious about it. It sort of just happened. I mean, you know, it's 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 like the fact that I now only ever wear t-shirts. I never, I used to for a long time to wear shirts. Now I only ever wear t-shirts and jeans and uh, and these sort of hoodie type things. And it's, it's, it's. I think it's sort of. I'm very aware of getting older. I, and I don't like it. I, I, it's, it's sort of you know the the idea of slipping away, of losing, losing. Well, not I'm, I'm, I was going back to say control, but I never had control of losing relevance, if you like, of losing your place in the world because of of age. And and the more I sort of hide myself, I guess. The, 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 God, you're making me ask answer questions which I wouldn't normally put to myself. Uh, but there it is, it's, and it's 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 also warmer, you know, these days since we don't have the heating on. It's it's quite sensible to wear a hat indoors. Now, some people just get on well with each other and they like each other. And I don't know whether you like me, but I like you. And I, I've, I've only met you in the flesh once, as I said earlier, but I like you. And I'm interested to know what you're like more generally in life and whether most people tend to like you and what you think of yourself. In other words, sort of who is Anthony Horowitz? And, and as part of this, because we spent a lot of time, quite rightly, talking about your books and your writing, as we should have done. But I want people to get a sense of who you think you are. And as part of this, because we've run out of questions, and maybe that might help you answer this, do you have any sort of special or unusual skills, secret skills that we don't know about? Um, well, first, let me begin by saying that I shall now immediately scour all your interviews to find one that you say, you know, I have to tell you, I don't like you very much. I've never really liked you, but, but, but and then continue from there. I'm sure this is part of your interview technique, uh, Matthew. I'm not sure I've ever said to an interview, <laughs> I like them. I always say the same, that when I met you in Hay, I was very nervous of you. I, I knew who you were. I knew what your politics were. I knew that you were likely to be quite challenging. And I was very surprised. I said to you after, I think I sent you an email to say that it really was one of the best interviews I had ever had. And, uh, and I liked it very much. And as I said at the beginning of this, before we were recording, I'm looking forward very much seeing you again in Oxford shortly. Um, uh, so, so it is a mutual feeling. Uh, and how I am, who I am, is exactly what you found in this interview. I'm, you know, I think it's an interesting thing when you're interviewed. You can create a sort of an avatar of yourself that right that, that answers the questions that you think will sound good or make you look good or whatever. Whereas actually, I've, I've because of partly of my age, I'm sort of just of the view now that here I am. You've asked me this question. This is the answer as best as I can give it. Uh, and um, and so so what I am is just an, a, a writer of entertainments and somebody who has spent 40 years trying to make people smile in a, in a broad way. I mean, that that's it. Secret skills, not many really. I speak Greek. I suppose that's about as a secret. Well, it's not that secret. I've mentioned it before, I think, elsewhere. But, but I have been learning Greek for about seven or eight years and have managed to get myself to a very good standard of speaking, unfortunately, a zero standard of comprehension. So well, I can ask the way to the post office, but I can't find my way there when I'm told. Not entirely useful, really. But nonetheless, this, is, this is exactly my experience of French. Because I sort of feel like when I'm speaking it, I can I can sort of construct it at my own pace, and I'm a little bit more in control. When someone else is speaking, I can't understand a word. Of this. I, I mean, when I was sent away for you know to do two weeks in a French home, I still remember the horror of sitting at a dining room table with eight people jabbering away in French, and of course not being able to understand a word of it. Understanding is always the most difficult part of a language, but it's worse with Greek because unlike French, where at least one in three words is pretty much the same as in English, in Greek none of them are. So. 
you really are left floundering. Plus, they talk at ninety-seven miles an hour. So Although we do, we we do derive quite a lot of our language from ancient Greek as well as from Latin. Uh some words absolutely true, yes, but not enough. I mean, so just to give you an example, to trapezi is the table, but in French it's table. So you know, table, table, trapezi. That you know, it's 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 a world apart. Every word is like that, and so it's a, it's pretty nightmarish. But I am proud of the fact that I have, and it's also apparently a good thing to do when you get older is to learn a language because it does keep your brain exercised. Uh, other secret skills: I play the piano, but not terribly well. Um, and and that's about it. You know, I, you asked me about becoming a writer age 10. It was a recognition at that time, but I was no good at anything else. And it more or less remains the same to this day. It's, it's fascinating because you, you you say there that, you know, you could create if you were if you were minded to an avatar of yourself when you're being interviewed. I've read before, I think, that you said that when people are nasty to one on social media, they sort of think they know who you are. But they don't. I think it, it's possible to create sort of monster. I'm not saying people do this of you, but it's possible to create monsters of other people, isn't it? Because we want them to fit into a certain a certain space, and, and that maybe suits us. It's not a nice thing to do. And actually, if people got to know each other better, the world would probably be a better place. And social media, as well as linking people together, can actually dr obviously drive us apart and 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 create terrible division. Social media has got wonderful uses. I mean, I like my Twitter account because I use it entirely to, to liaise with, talk to, to answer questions from readers about books. I don't use it for politics. I don't use it for sarcasm. I don't use it for sort of a bandwagon in any form or, or, or at all. However, it has to be said that as far as I can see, social media has done enormous damage to the country and to the world, simply for the reasons that you just outlined, that it has turned everything into black and white. And on social media, somebody can be either a, a complete villain or they can be a complete hero, but people have forgotten that they can actually be both. And I think in terms of what's happening in the world of politics, which you asked me about briefly a few minutes ago, where, where politicians are now routinely demonized. There's a very good um, uh, editorial in The Guardian today about the retirement of Nicola Sturgeon, where it talks about this effect of, of the utter vituperativeness, the malice, the anger, the hatred, the, the misapprehension about politicians as if they are all as bad as, unfortunately, some recent ones have been. Uh, they're not. Politicians, by and large, are trying to do their best. And we have to recognise that. And when I said to you, uh, again, in this interview, that I didn't think New Labour would have any great, much more joy than the Conservative Party has now, it is simply because the moment they get into power, they too will find themselves at the wrong end of that coconut shy, where anything and everything they do is questioned and, and maliciously undermined and where the insults are thrown. And we have got to pull back from that. We've got to rediscover kindness and tolerance and understanding because we are heading ever further into this awful vortex which has only been there as far as I can see since media social media uh came to came came to power came, rose up interesting you re you still refer to labor as new labor did I that was a slip of the tongue well that said I don't think Keir Starmer would be too sorry to hear it <laughs> it's been it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you and um, I'm very grateful to your time really really enjoyed it and I'm sure people listening will have done as well so Anthony Horowitz thank you so much for answering my 20 questions thank you Matthew